I, I want to know how Eugene Can is doing. Uh, I'm doing well. I ended up coming to the office extra early. Just a little bit easier to start the day off. Honestly, Sharice, I look forward to this every Wednesday. Chopping it up. I do with too. The Sharice Poon. I do too. We're both on Twitter again. I don't know. Were you? Did you return I'm the one earlier that than you me? Back in. Remember? You did. Well, actually, technically no. So what pulled me back in was because I was looking for articles for the briefing. And then I was like, I should be using Twitter to find articles. But then you convinced me to put the app back on my phone. I don't utilize Twitter for searching out and seeking out articles that are beyond a certain sort of time reference. Like it's something that in the last 24 hours, I might go and see what is the topic of the day and utilize that as a quote unquote search platform. But I think the half-life is like, Beyond those 24 hours, like, how do you find stuff? Well, no, I think it depends on the kind of people you follow. And I feel like I follow people who share really quality work, quality long form work that does not need to be read the, like the second it was released. Maybe you should tell people why you left Twitter in the first place. Yeah, sure. So I left Twitter about four months ago because I follow a lot of U.S.-based journalists and they talk a lot about U.S. politics. And it was really getting me down, like severely getting me down that the news was starting to affect my mood. You generally control most of your experience, right? Yeah. So you could easily unfollow those journalists, can't control your retweets. What do you get from Twitter, Eugene? I've always been sort of lukewarm on Twitter. I've kind of dipped in and out. I've never really had this consistent period where I was using it regularly. And I think a lot of it comes down to, first off, the quote unquote editorial design of it. I just don't like it. I don't like the fact that I'm limited by 140 characters because I think there's a lot of things that based on how Twitter is used by, as you mentioned, a lot of journalists, I don't know if you can break these complex thoughts down into 140 characters. Because how often do you see that that really annoying one slash whatever that signifies this is a tweet out of a long stream, right? That's just poor editorial design. All the time. Maybe that is the allure of it because it forces people when they don't have these things, these ideas, these longer form ideas to just be very concise. Yeah, it, it forces editing. Yeah, but I guess beyond that, I I've always felt that what value do I have to bring to the ecosystem? Yeah. I think recently I've, I've sort of identified a voice. And honestly, I've never really been that outspoken. But by virtue of doing the make and briefing, um, forcing myself to develop a point of view that I can stand behind and I can generally articulate because I've had to go through the process of identifying the key points and mm -hmm. knowing what I stand for. I just become generally more confident in yeah. explaining myself in a public forum. Yeah, I mean, doing this podcast has helped me because traditionally on Twitter, I usually don't speak very much either. I do a lot of retweeting and liking and maybe short responses, but I don't really editorialize, um, except doing this podcast has helped me want to say more. We generally become more comfortable with being wrong because there's no way we're going to be right over the course of the entirety of making it up, right? There's always going to be instances where... Chances are very good. Chances are very good that I'm going to say something stupid. Yep. I'm going to say something wrong. And I, 
And I'm sure it's going to happen with you. Yeah, no, right? for sure. But that's okay. I, I'm making my peace with it. If this is your first time tuning into Making It Up, we analyze and debate some recent topics in creative culture while also trying to illustrate our thoughts. After some deliberation these past couple of weeks, we are slightly changing our structure. So now what we do is Eugene picks a topic, I pick a topic, and we each lead our topic. So this week's episode, Eugene is going to talk about being able to send your children to a social star creator camp to level up their social media creation skills. And I'm going to talk about how Deloitte is trying a new approach to better include people that feel othered. Well, so let's jump right into it. Yeah. So Eugene, you wanted to talk about this new internet celebrity summer camp based in LA. Correct. So to, to give you a bit of rundown of what it is, Social Star Creator Camp is a summer camp for teens based in the Los Angeles area. It follows a similar vein to just traditional sort of acting acting camps for kids. Um, it's run by a guy named Michael Buckley. And it's interesting because his focus is primarily on helping these teens become vloggers, vloggers. What, what is the correct term for it? I think it's vloggers. Let's, let's use vloggers then. We're already... T- we're already dating ourselves. Yeah, it's one of those words. It, it falls in the category of words that you read all the time, but you've never heard it used in real life. Um, and apparently upwards of 75% of kids these days want to be vloggers based on a Daily Mail article. I think my British counterparts might question uh, how accurate the Daily Mail is. Being a vlogger is now a type of job that is kind of coming to the forefront. It's exciting. It's interesting. Um, so the goal of this camp, anyways, is to equip these students with the appropriate skills to excel at these opportunities. And I mean, what's kind of cool is that these opportunities are generally self-created, right? Because YouTube and other sort of social media platforms are self-publishing. You don't really have to wait for someone else to come and offer you an opportunity. Buckley describes the opportunity. He describes it as a character builder. You may not play in the World Cup of soccer slash football, Mm -hmm. but there's obvious value in learning skills and going through the rigor of improving yourself. Of course you like this metaphor. Of course, naturally any sports metaphor I, I gravitate towards. Um, and the, the whole camp itself goes beyond just the technical side. It's not just, Oh, how do you use the, the requisite software to cut your videos, et cetera. There's other elements of it, whether it's building a business or even handling stuff like online bullying, which, as you know, the internet is rife with trolls. Mm-hmm. My, my personal thoughts on this were, when I first came across the headline, I was like, oh man, this is so dumb. Yeah. But then I went and actually read it. I'm like, you know what? This actually isn't that far off. If you really start looking beyond creating sort of a social media camp, because I think that social media as a catch-all for this is not incorrect, but I think it's selling itself short, right? Because... So what do you think is more accurate? What would be a more accurate way of pitching this camp? I don't know. That's a good point. I never thought of it that far because it's not incorrect. I would have never gotten the full understanding of what this is had I not read it. I might have just dismissed the headline. Okay. I look at it as social media is kind of this critical pillar of our lives, right? And if you, what is social media? It's basically storytelling communication and there, there's a lot of value in great communication and great storytelling. I think we'll all agree, right? We're big, 
you and I are kind of in this business. That's mm-hmm. what essentially what making is, right? Yeah. So to have the right skills and the right foundation to do that at a high level, I think there's a lot of social benefit and value there, right? I'm not saying that every single vlog that's going to be created as a byproduct of any student is going to be a game changer, right? It might just be, oh, here's a makeup tip. Oh, here is uh, something else that pertains to something maybe more trivial. Once you have that foundation, it's kind of interchangeable. You want to, you might, you might be 15, you might be 15 years old and your initial vlog might be focusing on makeup. But as you get older, ooh, actually, is that a good reference? I mean, you're kind of young. <laughs> Anyways, bad reference, bad reference. Maybe you're 15 years old and you're talking about, um, a toy or you're talking about some sort of product review that pertains to your I demographic. Think any, not that I think we have 15 year olds who listen to this. I mean, I don't know. Maybe they do. I think they are going to object to the fact that you suggested their vlogs are going to be about toys. But you know, that's fine. Let's keep, let's keep going. I was going to say Minecraft. That was my suggestion. Minecraft. Yeah. Okay. Like let's a, say this, but, but like a 12 year old, like a 12 year old vlog about Minecraft modding. I think this is like a realistic example. Continue. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thanks for that contribution, Sharice. So let's say that that is the initial sort of touch point. But once you have the foundations of storytelling, there's nothing stopping you from taking on other topics, right? Because yeah. you generally know how to, how to, how to approach it. So that's why for me, like the amiss, for me, there was that initial dismissive nature of what this represents. But yeah. as I look further into it, like, oh, you know what? This is something that honestly has value. Being a great storyteller has value, right? Well, um, yeah. It can also be used for, for other things like, oh, whether it's marketing or whatever. I've always said this is like, you know, you meet a lot of startup founders and marketing is always a challenge, mm-hmm. right? Like I think, well, in my immediate circle, I'm, I'm more likely co- to connect with builders, people that are building a product, creating something. And it's not always the easiest to market it and to talk about it. But having that sort of foundation there, I think is really helpful to kind of flip it around. I guess to come back to what you mentioned, what is an accurate way of, of outlining this? It probably need to focus more on maybe focusing less on social media as it's sort of catch all, but more about this camp allows teens to improve their storytelling for social media. Like, I think that would be a bit more, it would definitely be accurate. Um, I don't know if necessarily the camp is positioned as trying to solve this. I look at it from a deeper perspective of, Hey, you know what? If you improve upon all these things that they're, they're equipping you with, you be, you essentially become a better storyteller and a better communicator. Do you think? the kids who are signing up for this camp are expecting or wanting that? I don't think they necessarily think along those lines. I can tell you for, I can only use my own experience. I wasn't thinking along those lines when I was 15, albeit that was like way, way pre-social media. But this is kind of the purpose of this camp. And I was thinking about this the other day. It's, I think a great coach or mentor is someone that can accelerate and make someone understand their experience, right? Like, there's a lot, there's part of that where the guy that's, that's overseeing the whole project, this Michael Buckley guy, he has his own YouTube following and for him to be successful as a coach and mentor, which is maybe a little bit different from being a, a successful vlogger is how can you take your experience and ensure that 
your students are understanding it in a way that they can apply it as quickly as possible. And not like, hey, let me tell you this, but you're still waiting to go through the whole process yourself to understand what it means. And I think that's kind of the the disconnection or the, I guess, the thing that you need to cross. That's the bridge you need to cross. Does that make sense? It does make sense. But I want to go back and ask you, I think you are right that I think Buckley is doing a good job that he is trying to mentor these kids and not just help them get more followers. But I want to go back to the question of why you think people are signing, why do you think kids, youth are signing up to this camp? I'm not trying to like, I'm not trying to lure you into a trap. I'm just saying like, you've been talking about what the purposes the camp serves, like what you see is good about this camp and how they are, what something that originally struck you as seems kind of dumb, but turns out to make a lot of sense, like could be empowering to these kids. Do you think that that's what these kids and youth and their parents think when they sign up for this camp? Okay, if I was to look at what is so interesting and captivating about being a popular vlogger, I can just off the top of my head run through different benefits, right? Like it's entrepreneurship, being your own boss, uh, community, you know, friends that you, you develop along the way, exploring your passions, right? Like you use Minecraft. Minecraft is sort of a vehicle that this person's generally passionate about anyways. So now they're like taking to the next step. Right. And I think a lot of this also comes into the realm of betterment and self-learning, because I think a lot of these things that do well is like you're learning about something, right? You're providing some sort of knowledge or at least, you know, an opportunity for people, for the community to come in and we can talk about this. We can discuss it. So I, I think there's a lot of tangible benefits to being a quote unquote successful vlogger. So what are the dangers? So what are the dangers? Mm hmm. Cause I feel like you are, I feel like you are trying to persuade me that there is benefit in this career choice and you're not mentioning like what people might think or what the gut reaction could be. I'm, I'm glad you bring this up because I too was thinking about what are the, the negative externalities of going down this route of wanting to be a quote unquote social media star, mm -hmm. right? I think obviously mental health is a big one. Those are, it's, it seems like every three months you have a new study. Oh, mental health is negatively affected by social media. I, I think there's no denying that. Right. But to that point, I think there's in a, I mean, it's, I, we obviously haven't taken, we haven't participated in this camp. I think naturally once you start looking at, some of these topics more holistically, it's difficult to overlook things like mental health, online bullying, all that stuff. And to address it earlier rather than later, you're starting to build in these, these mechanisms or these experiences that once someone encounters it, they generally know, oh, what are the steps for me to potentially overcome, alleviate, or fix this, right? right? And in this instance, like they do, they do address online bullying. And I think online bullying falls into that sort of category of, it falls into that category of mental health. Right. Obviously you're experiencing personal attacks and all that. So I look at that as definitely something that's worth exploring and something that's worth kind of addressing. I don't think it's as straightforward as being just very business centric. I think there are values in building, um, character. Through this, you know, I think that whether or not how comprehensive this is, it can only get better, right? Like we're in a, 
moment in time where if this is the first one and this is starting to be a part of every our everyday fabric of life, there's no reason why it won't grow from here. And there's so many things that are being addressed that as I look at it, I'm like, there's no one's going to be oblivious to online bullying to mental health and all these things. Because we're the general trajectory right now suggests we're definitely aware of the situation. I think I do want to make a kind of fight back against what you're saying, because while you and I might be very aware of what online bullying looks like and the correct response to that, I have some concerns about these kids who even if this camp covers it, I suspect are still not adequately prepared to actually handle it if it does come up. And I'm not, I understand it is not this camp's responsibility because most likely a bunch of these kids are going to start YouTube channels and be on Instagram and doing all this social media stuff anyway, right? Like the it exists. Um, but I do wonder if this camp kind of encourages even more of this behavior without them having the resources to handle what might come out of it. So, so basically you're putting them on a trajectory of potential, for lack of a better word, social media stardom and accelerating that without giving them the proper sort of mental capacity um, and the experiences to handle what might be thrown at them. Yes. I don't doubt there's always going to be some sort of hater that exists out there. There's always going to be a hater, but I think you're also painting things in a, in a certain negative stroke where you're assuming that the outcome is, is always going to be negative and there's always going to be those trolls. And I think that if, if that was the case, if that was the case, if we were always going to pursue things based off what people said we shouldn't do or what people say we were, it's not in our capabilities to do it. Then I think that we're, I think we're entering a very dangerous place as a society and a culture. If you're afraid of taking these opportunities because you're afraid of the negative ramifications. I'm not discouraging kids from being on social media and starting YouTube channels. What I think I would like to see more of is almost like how we have sex ed. I think there needs to be more internet ed. Like, I think this camp is starting on that. Like they do cover, they have the LAPD come in, like, Michael Buckley talks about what to do if a troll comes up. I guess as much as we are encouraging kids to be on social media, there needs to be an equal measure of equipping them to handle things that might come up. The disagreement here is between you and I is, is it happening fast enough? Right? Because I, yeah. I personally see it as it's definitely being addressed since it is sort of a new avenue or new topic that doesn't quite have uh, best practices associated with it. It's just going to take time. Like online bullying is something that I don't know if online bullying's solution is the same solutions that exist for offline bullying. I'm sure there's parts of it, but all of a sudden you have other elements associated with it, like doxing. Yeah. Just like general, like privacy issues, all that stuff. Yeah. I just think it's a matter of not necessarily letting it play out passively and just, oh, whatever happens and we'll react. But knowing that it's basically something new that we have to deal with that we don't quite have all the answers to. If we are going to encourage kids to pursue being on the internet in some form as a persona, as a viable career, as a way of monetizing their interests, which is fine. Like I am for that. 
if we're going to, as a society, encourage it, we need to also make real changes that protect these these occupations, these these interests. A side note in this article that we haven't mentioned is the LAPD says to the kids, you're protected online by the law, but it's a very difficult law to enforce. I'm not, I know I'm being negative and doomsday, but I still think you need to be, I'm not being a hater. I think I'm just being pessimistic or like I'm throwing like cold water on this, I guess, is that if something does happen, we're still not well equipped to defend them. At this point in time, I'm satisfied with the addressing of it. Yeah. I, we don't have to harp on it. I think, yeah, I just wanted to be clear on my point. And I'm not trying to say, you know, this camp needs to be shut down or that these kids shouldn't start YouTube channels. I just think that there have to be equal measures that allow them to do that. That's a positive way to put it, right? Like if we up our ante on, you know, law enforcement and education, that's encouraging them even more down this path to say we've, we've put all the right measures in place that allow you to do this. You don't have a kid. Would you send your hypothetical kid? No, I wouldn't. But that's also because I think I have, and it's not to toot my own horn, but I just have a general better understanding of the social media landscape. And I think this also was something that crossed my mind. Does this create an environment of the haves versus the have nots? Uh... So if you cannot send your kid to this, does that mean that they will not achieve success? And, you know, I stop myself very quickly and I'm like, there's so many real world implications. Having that opportunity to go to that school or that that learning opportunity definitely puts you ahead. But there's so many other intangible things that are happening all at once that allow people that don't necessarily have the opportunity to still succeed. Mind you, it is more difficult. Don't get me wrong. I mean, look at the whole, he started with a, with a soccer slash football analogy and it's like, how many people have achieved success without needing to go sort of a certain route? Yeah. Right. They figured it out on their own. They were continually monitoring their situations and improving because they were just self-aware. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's certain things that are also innate, right? Just, just like you have athletes have a certain innate physical talent. The same can be said for your ability to read people's reactions, your ability to communicate, your voice, all these different things. And actually, I would argue that the internet is like a quite a fair playing ground, you know? Like, I, I know not everyone has access to the same tools, but generally speaking, the obstacles in place to someone opening a YouTube channel is low. Sure, like maybe you won't have the fancy video equipment, but... I would like to think of it as still very um, open. Yeah. How many times have you seen a social media star? I, I use that. I, I cringe when I say that word. But how often have you seen someone that's put out a very, very lo-fi, mediocre video, but they have a ton of traffic? Yeah. Like all the time. You know, it's, it, yeah. it, it is nice what you emphasized earlier about storytelling, right? And I think the internet does prize not necessarily like high, like HD quality, but good storytelling. Share with me the topic that sort of piqued your interest yeah. for this week. Uh, read this article on Bloomberg about Deloitte, and it's about their decision recently to phase out diversity advocacy groups. Um, 
These groups are basically places where people of the same gender or the same race or the same sexual orientation can get together and support one another. And it's based off of the fact that they have this one part of their identity that they share. Right. So Deloitte made this decision to phase out these groups in favor of something that they're calling inclusion councils. And they're very clear this doesn't mean that they are not taking diversity and inclusion seriously. It's that they believe that this aspect of companies has grown stagnant and some serious change needs to be made. So I did a little bit of background research and these advocacy groups were first created in around the late 1960s. So I do think that there is some argument to be made that if companies have been doing this for 50 years, then maybe it's time for some innovation in this area. I do think Deloitte is making a courageous move by announcing that they are changing because they say it themselves that they don't have to make this change. Like no one is going to say, Deloitte, why are you still using these employee resource groups when other people are making change? Because that's not the case. They're the first ones to be like, we're going to try and do something different. What was interesting to me about this article, actually what's interesting to me about the two pieces that we picked today is that we both had gut negative reactions and then I guess came around to understanding the idea. Because the first time I read this article, I was like, this seems like a bad idea. This sounds like you are taking away resources from women and minorities and people of different sexual orientations. Like that's what it sounds like to me. But upon further investigation into why Deloitte is doing this, I, I am interested to find out if this pans out because their argument is that Diversity groups need to get more advocacy, particularly from executives who tend to be white males. And the groups that had currently been in place were secluded. So even if they were supporting and encouraging one another, it was actually not really helping them affect change because the leaders, the people, or some key decision makers were not in the room. So their idea is that in order to really get change, you have to have conversations that include everyone so that the people who other people who might not identify as you do, but would still like to help, would still like to be part of the culture can also do something. First and foremost, as you mentioned, if we've been integrating or if we've had the notion of diversity groups for upwards of five decades and we're at the place we are right now. I see it as a catastrophic failure. <laughs> yeah. Right. I don't see that we've made a ton of progress and in many ways there's been regression. Yeah. Right. So it's ripe for trying a new game plan. Yeah. But secondly, I can speak somewhat anecdotally. Like I'm not like, I don't fall into that prototypical white male exec role. Right. But I have been in a position to make relatively meaningful company decisions and I look at it and like there is a sort of misalignment where even if I was to champion someone's cause, sometimes it, 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 it looks a little bit off for someone who isn't of that sort of group to be involved. Right. But yeah. I do believe that once you knock down the barriers, it's like, let's say, um, 
Eugene is trying to fight for the for the rights of the transgendered community, right? For me to be part of that, I think it it lends itself to a bit of misalignment. But if you actually flatten it a bit more and understand that the, there is a common goal, I think that exists between each of these groups, whether it's based on sexuality, it's based on race, et cetera, et cetera. There is a common goal that exists, and that's I think equality, right? At least the first goal. You know, I'm sure there's more new, more there's probably nuances to that. But let's say the overarching goal is is equality and acceptance. They can definitely leverage each other's goals that they're trying to achieve together. And I also think that it allows people to kind of accept other outside help, outside influence that doesn't maybe look or feel like them to help kind of champion their cause. I mean, I would feel a little bit more comfortable under that condition because you know that, hey, you know what? I'm here for your cause based on on this end goal versus like changing it up in the sense that, hey, as you as a member of this community, you can't even begin to, to, to understand our struggles and our challenges. And I think it's like, not necessarily, I agree, you know, maybe I'll never be in your position, but I still have a sense of interest in what you're trying to achieve. Do you believe that this, this plan of action has any potential downfalls? Yes, I do. I think one, one major concern that comes to mind is that once you put these other people in the room, the people who think of themselves as others or minorities will not feel comfortable being open. Like the big thing about advocacy groups was that you brought people who shared in this one aspect together so that they could talk about it, right? Or even if they don't talk about like, let's say it's a group for women, right? Which Deloitte has had for 24 years. They call it this, uh, they call it WIN. It's a woman's initiative. So you put a bunch of women in the room, then even if they aren't talking about like specifically female experiences, they can all feel comfortable knowing that everyone has the same background as them. And I did see some backlash online to Deloitte's movement saying that once you put men in a room, women get less airtime, as in they speak significantly less. Is that because men are dominating the conversation or because women feel less comfortable speaking up? I don't know. It could be. I think it's both. I think it's a combination that there are women who immediately feel less comfortable or not less comfortable. I don't think they would even specifically say that, but somehow they would be a little bit more hesitant. Like they've just, this is how it is, right? You walk into a room and you evaluate who is in the room when you open your mouth. I think that's really natural. And I don't think people tend to break it down. Like, oh, it's because so-and-so was here and that's why I said this thing, but subconsciously it happens. Or unfortunately it could be because there are men in the room who are very dominant and maybe they don't perceive themselves that way either. They're just more comfortable speaking their mind. So that's, that's the, that's my reservation or the one reservation, one of the reservations I can think of. I do have pushback against that because what is the other option? The other option is let's use your, 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 your win example, right? The other option is having a closed environment where this group is speaking amongst themselves where you don't even have the opportunity to make yourself known or be heard. And I think that's, that's where it exists is like, if this whole 
premise is to allow groups access to the people that are making decisions to at least inform them or educate them. I think you're, you're, you're fundamentally changing the relationship. You're, you're allowing the conversation to take a certain dynamic and take a certain route that previously didn't exist. I agree. If, if you had this win group and then you introduced, you know, a male counterpart without sort of prefacing what this means or what this, what, why he's there, I definitely think there's a sense of uh, discomfort that might exist. If you change the whole narrative to ensure that people are allowed to enter the conversation and what is his purpose there, right? And I, it sucks as we have to use what is his, but like if you have, let's just say like people that can make decisions, if you have them in the room, there is a certain sort of dynamic that changes there that you're closer to a solution than if you had to like chop it up into different pieces in yeah. my opinion. I mean, I don't think we don't have to say what is his perspective. We can also say hers because I think we, you would have the same situation if there was like a minority group and a white uh, female executive that joined. Do you know what I mean? So it's, it's not just about like gender yeah. equality, which I think is a positive thing to mention, right? Like we're not just demonizing white men in executive positions. Um, I do think it breaks down to, how the inclusion councils work, it, it, like the details of how it works, which isn't covered in the Bloomberg article. I wouldn't, ex I wouldn't expect it to be, but I do think there would have to be certain guidelines about the makeup of a council, like having people who are responsible for uh, gauging the comfort levels in the room or like just making sure that people are have their voices in real tangible ways, not just being like, oh, I feel that people were allowed to speak up. But having numbers, right? Like there have to be this many people present. Um, one thing that gives me confidence, or I, I don't work for Deloitte. I don't actually even know a friend who does. And I would love to hear from someone um, if they have some personal experience. Anyway, so one thing that gives me confidence is I came across this article with the chairman of Deloitte, Mike Fucci, and he was speaking about this mentorship program that Deloitte has where every board member has to sponsor at least three employees. And when they come up with four names, they specifically have to be a minority, a woman, someone in the same business function, and someone in a different business function. So like, that's what I'm talking about, about being specific about the requirements. And hopefully that applies to the inclusion councils. L let me leave you this with this one thought. Do inclusion councils not necessarily in the same sort of application of in a business, but the, the concept of inclusion councils, do they exist in the real world? Can I give you an anecdote, like an anecdotal example here? I am part of this Facebook group, which I'm not going to name specifically because what I'm about to say is kind of negative. Um, I'm part of this Facebook group that's for female creatives only so only female creatives or uh, well we the group also accepts people who identify as female but anyway this group has the issue i think you mentioned earlier which is that it's a closed group and the purpose does not seem to be to affect change in any way so much as it is to give everyone a shoulder to cry on and I know that there are women who need that 
Like maybe they're in a really tough position in their company where they're the only woman on a team or the only female leader um, on a board. And so they do need other women in other industries to just empathize with them and hear them out. But it just sometimes seems like too much of a whinge fest. Like as in people just being like, this sucks. This happened to me is not fair. You know, like nothing. We don't seem to get beyond that. I don't know how a inclusion council Facebook group would ever work. I just like at least in a company, they have the same, they have the same end goal as you mentioned, right? Like as a company, they have certain, uh, certain missions and even more specifically like certain tasks that they have to accomplish, right? In a certain branch, but you don't have that in the real world. I guess I asked that because I, I did sort of have a, an answer in mind. And my answer was, and I don't think it's perfect. It's by, by no means a perfect example, but in general, I've, I've always looked at this. I've always looked at the creative community. And I mean, that is a very broad, broad category. But if you were to break down pockets of it, I would say in general, like artists have generally been always the most accepting of people of all different walks of life. Right. And it was never about creating these, these pockets of like gay artists, um, female artists. And I think they exist, but in, on the whole, there are certain obviously bad actors that you can't deny that. But in general, I've always felt that the, the general understanding was a sense of acceptance. There are sort of real world implications of inclusion councils. Maybe they're, they've never been as deliberate as to push this, this, exact narrative because you know their function is artists to create art but the unspoken word was generally acceptance i don't think the creative community is as accepting as you are describing i i think maybe we rank a little bit better than other communities but i think there's still a lot of work we could do i think part of the problem though is maybe that it's not that gosh this is just like targeting white straight men it's not like white straight men don't want to help, but maybe we're not being clear about how they can help. Like, maybe they would love to see more female artists in gallery shows, right? Like, how do we help them do that? And it's actually interesting that you bring this up, like male artists and female artists, because of the talk we're going to be having with Sarah and Ariel, Carmen, Vanessa. I'm sure they're going to provide some insights, right? Like on this, on what's good about the creative community that has allowed them to have opportunities, but also where there needs to be improvement. Yeah. Maybe on that note, you can talk about our upcoming making yeah, session. This is a good point to go into that. So on August 3rd, Thursday at 12 to 1 PM PST Pacific time, we're going to have a online discussion with Sarah Kim, Ariel Myers, Carmen Chan and Vanessa Chung. Sarah and Ariel, uh, also with their friend Lindsay, curated an exhibition um, called Feminine Product earlier this year in LA. We're going to have Sarah and Ariel, two of the three curators, talk to two of the artists who were exhibiting in the show. And they're all going to talk about their experiences as artists, creators, what has been difficult for them in the community or in showing art and putting up art publicly. 
Um, I think it's going to be a great conversation and really looking forward to it. It is an online discussion, so registration is open to everyone. We have put the link in the show notes. If you're interested in hearing more about Macon and its membership opportunities, please head over to Macon.com. There you can experience some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.